Okay, in this, uh, <clears throat> in this final lecture, I want to reflect upon, uh, it, it's be a bit more eclectic this lecture than the other ones, I want to reflect upon uh, Luther's thoughts on uh, the wider world in some ways. Uh, I want to re- think about his, his understanding of, of church and state. Uh, I want to offer a few thoughts on marriage and family, and also perhaps touch upon his uh, understanding of uh, death itself. One of the, well, the, the most important year of Luther's early reforming career was 1520. 1520, he uh, writes three significant treaties that lay out his manifesto for the Reformation. He writes, The Freedom of the Christian Man, which is his discussion of Christian ethics in the context of his growing, developing understanding of justification by grace through faith. Uh, If uh, justification comes before uh, the Christian's works, then what should those works look like? How should they be motivated? Uh, The second treatise is Babylonian captivity of the church. Uh, The Babylonian captivity of the church is his sacramental revision of the church. If you're a medieval Christian, the church, you'd have been familiar with seven sacraments. Luther reduces the seven sacraments down to, well, in the main text of Babylonian captivity, down to three, baptism, Lord's Supper, and penance. And then in the, in the uh, postscript, in the, in the final section of the work, says that he's not sure that penance is a sacrament after all. So arguably reduces the number of sacraments down to two. And those two works really lay out uh, in, in a significant way the, the theological content, practical theological content of the Reformation. The third work is an appeal to the German nobility. Now, if we've got to think ourselves back into the 16th century at this point. Luther's move come a long way since the 95 Theses. By 1520, uh, the, the excommunication is being put together. He's going to be excommunicated from the church. It's becoming very evident to him that the church is not going to reform itself. When he writes the five Theses, he has every reason to expect that when the Pope finds out what's going on, he will clamp down on uh, the behavior of people like Tetzel and will bring about a reformation of the church. Luther finds, you know, in 1518, he's summoned to a trial at Augsburg. He's put on trial, and it's only because of Frederick the Wise uh, using his power as as an elector of the Holy Roman Empire, that that Luther's able to get away from there in one piece. Uh, In 1519, he engages in further debates with Roman Catholic theologians that push him further and further into into the camp of the heretics, if you like. And then 1520, he's aware that the church is preparing an excommunication against him. Now, imagine how Luther's mind's working at this point. If the church isn't going to reform itself, then... How can the Reformation move forward? And the answer that Luther comes up with is, well, part of the problem in in the Middle Ages is there's been this woeful confusion of church and state. Uh, And the way to facilitate the Reformation is to encourage the civil magistrates, and in Luther's world, that's the princes, the nobility, to get the civil magistrates to take back power which rightfully belongs to them but which has been taken off them surreptitiously by the church. The church of Luther's day is a very political entity. It engage in wars, for example, 
the Pope was able to muster mercenary armies to fight on his behalf. Luther has come to the conclusion in 1520 that we need to separate out the church and the state. And what he does in this appeal to the German nobility is he analyzes the power that the church has and argues that the real problem is the church does not understand what it means to be the church. Now, I know because some of you have already asked me questions about this. Uh, A number of you are interested in current debates about two kingdoms theology that is going on. Uh, You can ask me about that if you like in the Q&A towards the end. Uh, But some of the origins of that debate is found in 1520. As Luther reflects upon church and state, he sees both the church and the civil magistrate as institutions of God. They're divinely instituted. So the magistrate and the minister both have divine authority. But Luther sees them as having separate spheres of authority. The weapons of the church, Luther sees, as being that of word and sacrament. The weapon of the magistrate is that of the sword. Uh, The power of the magistrate is to be coercive. We could put it bluntly, is to be physical. Uh, You cross the line. If you are somebody who is in jeopardizing the lives or the safety of the innocent, you can be arrested, you can be confined. Luther will talk later on about how uh, being a hangman is a, a perfectly legitimate Christian calling because you're fulfilling, helping the magistrate fulfill his task as the protector of the innocent. Church, on the other hand, is not to be coercive. The church is to operate on the basis of the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And Luther sees that at the root of the problem in the medieval church, at the root of the problem is the fact that a worldly concept of hierarchy has crept into the church and corrupted it. That the church makes a distinction, a distinction between those who are truly spiritual and those who are not on the basis of earthly calling. And so confuses, if you like, the earthly and the spiritual. What he says is, for example, you know, that the Pope, the cardinals, the priests and the monks... He says, are called the spiritual estate. These are the men who are particularly close to God because we might say of the callings they have here and now. Everybody else is spiritually second class. And Luther sees that distinction as lying at the heart of the corrupt pretensions that the church has. And what he does in uh, an appeal to the German nobility... uh, is he rides roughshod through that distinction. And I think the most, probably the most radical thing that Luther does uh, is shatter contemporary understandings of what is spiritual and what is worldly or earthly. Um, For Luther, the thing that always makes the difference is whether the word of God is grasped by faith or not. That is what makes somebody a spiritual person. 
It is not the calling one has. It is not what one does here on this earth that makes you better or worse than somebody else. The fundamental spiritual distinction is that brought about by the Word of God. Does somebody grasp the Word of God by faith or do they reject it? Such that uh, the monk, Luther started off, of course, as a monk, the monk who spends his day on his knees uh, praying to the Lord uh, and gets up off his knees at the end of the day and thinks that, therefore, his monastic calling has made him more spiritual and better in the eyes of God than, say, the man who sweeps the streets. That's an incorrect conclusion. If the man who sweeps the streets does it out of faith, and does it trusting in the word of God and to the glory of God, then the man who sweeps the streets is the truly spiritual one. This is earth-shattering, this breaking down of this spiritual, uh, non-spiritual, the spiritual-secular distinction is earth-shattering. If you're interested in art and you look at the great examples of, of medieval and Renaissance art, essentially, art in, say, the 14th or 15th century would fall into one of two categories. If you were very wealthy, you might have a portrait painted in order that your descendants would remember you after you died. It's sort of recapturing the reason why ancient Romans had busts of themselves made. The thing you feared most as a Roman was being forgotten after you died. So you might have a family portrait, you might have a portrait made for your family. But the most common form of late medieval and Renaissance art, of course, is the sacred scene. You go to the Vatican Library and you walk through the, the artwork. It's kind of overwhelming. There's just so much there. Every picture you'll recognize you saw in a textbook when you were at school. And here they are, all hanging side by side on the same wall. The art is all sacred art. It depicts sacred scenes. Even some of the non-sacred scenes, when you see them connected to the whole mural, become sacred. Uh, an obvious response to, well, not all scenes are sacred. What about... Uh, the, uh, the Academy of Athens, you know, Plato and Aristotle walking and talking in the Academy. When you see that in the Vatican Museum, it's part of a larger mural that culminates in the Pope celebrating Mass. So it's serving a religious purpose. Cut to the 17th century. Cut to uh, Vermeer. Now, Vermeer is a Dutch Golden Age painter. He happens to be a Roman Catholic which is slightly annoying because it's just a slight fly in the ointment of my argument. But Vermeer may be a Roman Catholic, but he could only paint in an era of Protestantism. One of Vermeer's uh, famous paintings is The Milkmaid. And it's a picture of a, of a girl carrying a pail of milk through a stone archway. And when you look at Vermeer's paintings, uh, there's something of the sacred about them. This is about as mundane and boring a scene as one could imagine in, 17th century, in the 17th century Netherlands. A girl carrying a milk pail through a stone arch. And yet Vermeer infuses it with a beauty that clearly transcends the moment that he's capturing on canvas. Why is he able to do that? He's able to do that because he's able to see the sacred in the secular. He's able to see that mundane routine human tasks have a sacred dignity to them. And that sacred dignity, of course, comes from Luther's destruction of this medieval sharp distinction between sacred callings and secular callings, between the church, which is placed, if you like, above the state in the great hierarchy of being. 
that's demolished. The person who sweeps the street, the girl who carries the pail of milk and does it in faith to the glory of God, does something more glorifying and something more sacred than the monk who spends all his days on his knees. So this, uh, this, this move that Luther makes in 1520 on that front, very significant, very significant for understanding the long-running impact of Luther and Protestantism on culture. And of course, some Catholics will turn around now and say, well, this, this was a bad thing, because when the, the secular becomes sacred, sooner or later the sacred becomes secular. And what we see now, the radical secularization, is simply the, the overflowing of Luther's Reformation uh, being carried to its nth degree. I disagree. I think that what Luther does here is, is biblical, and I think it's pastorally helpful as well. Uh, what is one of the problems that perennially afflicts Protestantism? I think uh, one of the problems of, well, certainly a Presbyterian Protestantism is this we can rightly react against the democratizing tendencies of our day by having a high view of the ministry. The problem is that sometimes our high view of the ministry creates an environment where people think if they're not in the ministry, they're not doing anything of value to, for God. The net result of that is that people who should never be in the ministry end up in the ministry. Because this, I tell you, this is how it works. They go to seminary and they get qualification from a seminary and then churches and presbyteries assume that that means they're qualified to be ministers. As I said the other day at Westminster, no, what that means is you've passed your exams and your check's cashed. That's what it means. And yet there is this psychology of, hey, a guy arrives at presbytery with an MDiv and he can string an English sentence together from a pulpit, we'll put him in the ministry. A healthier grasp, I think, of what Luther says, proper teaching what Luther says, is that whatever you do in this world can be done to the glory of God if it's done in faith. You don't have to be involved in full-time Christian ministry to glorify God in your daily life. You don't have to be an elder in the church to be doing something glorious and spiritual in your daily life. The elders in the church may ultimately be less spiritual than you. You can't judge another man's heart. You can only judge their outward behavior. And as I say, the broader thing, uh, uh, the broader point here is that this really does transform, I think, European culture. Second comment on, the, on this treatise, not only does it demolish the sacred-secular distinction, Luther also lays the groundwork for significant obedience to the civil magistrate. And this is where Luther is often criticized. And again, Luther has the misfortune of being German, and Germany has a very dark history, certainly over the last 100, 150 years. One of the uh, criticisms of the church in Germany under Nazi Germany is that so few Christians actually made a stand against Nazism. It's what makes Bonhoeffer such a significant figure. I'm just reading a book uh, on uh, um, Franz Hildebrand, who was uh, he's like the Roman Catholic Bonhoeffer. But, you know, the fact that these guys are interesting shows how few there were in Germany. And sometimes this is pinned on Luther. If, if the magistrate has authority from God, then can one resist the magistrate? And there's a strong strand of Luther that says, he says the magistrate is put in place by God and you are required to obey the civil magistrate because the civil magistrate stands in the place of God in the civic sphere in the same way that the minister stands in the place of God when he preaches in the church sphere. 
response to that might be, well, what happens if, uh, if the individual concerned is a tyrant? Well, Luther would say, God sends tyrants to punish people. If the man you labor under at the moment is a tyrant, then accept your punishment. Do not resist the punishment of God. Some level, it's easy, safe-ish to say that, I think, in the 16th century, when you're not facing Adolf Hitler. I think Hitler raises all kinds of questions that Luther could not have anticipated. In actual fact, I think that when you read this treatise in 1520, and certainly when you look at uh, the development of Luther's thinking, Luther's understanding of obedience to the civil magistrate is considerably more subtle than people allow. First of all, Luther definitely changes his mind in 1530. In 1530, the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran Confession of Faith, is presented to the emperor, and the emperor refuses to subscribe it. And then Luther changes his mind on obedience to the emperor. It's, a, it's almost a pragmatic move, but Luther decides at that point, you know, the emperor is not an unconditional ruler. The emperor, those of you who know about the Holy Emperor, the emperor, when you die as emperor, your son doesn't necessarily get the job. In medieval Europe, there were seven men who elected the next emperor, the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire, one of whom was the elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, was involved in a, a, an emperor election. And Luther says, so what we have here is an emperor whose power flows from the electors. And therefore, princes in the empire can resist the emperor, which means that a prince in the empire can subscribe the Augsburg Confession and impose Lutheranism on his territory. If you know your Reformation theology, that's not dissimilar to the kind of thing one finds in Calvin, where the lower magistrate is able to resist the senior magistrate. But even so, I think that the Luther of 1520 is more subtle. One of the questions I get when I'm teaching uh, Luther and the civil magistrate uh, at Westminster is, I'll typically get the question of, uh, okay, so I'm a doctor, and I go into hospital one morning, and my boss tells me, you've got to go to the gynecological unit, and you've got to perform an abortion. Do I do it? My boss is placed over me in the civil realm. I have a contract of employment, I'm required by that contract to obey my boss. Do I do it? Does Luther give me any basis for resisting that command at that point? Well, Luther's response, I think, would be this. That is a command that clearly contradicts the moral law of God. And therefore, one cannot follow it. You know, you shouldn't follow that any more than a man coming along and saying, you've got to sleep with the wife of the man next door. It doesn't work that way. So, as a, as a doctor, you have to say, no, I'm not going to do it. But, I think Luther would say, but your boss is your boss. He's been placed in authority over you by God. So how do we, how do we sort of solve this problem? Well, Luther would say, your boss, therefore, has, he has the right to fire you. You breached your contract, and he has the right to fire you. And the way you resolve this is you say, I'm not going to perform that abortion. Okay, you're fired. You accept it. Now, the response is, but that's not fair. Well, Luther's response is, but that's the way of the cross. That's the way of the cross. It was the way your master trod. It is the way that you should tread. So what you should not do is then sue the hospital for trying to make you perform an abortion. Now, I'm not saying I fully agree with, with all of what Luther would say in that situation, but track forward to, to Nazi Germany. I think Luther gives you every reason in the world not to be involved in uh, herding people into gas chambers or into gas vans 
or machine gunning children uh, in, in, in death camps. There's no way that Luther's theology does not allow you to resist that. Now, it may be that in saying, no, I'm not going to press the button on that gas chamber, that might get you into the gas chamber yourself. But Luther would say, well, that's the way of the cross. Do you know what they do if you come along and you, and you have a manifesto like Christ had? Whoops, they'll crucify you. And, of course, the, uh, the disturbing thing is we know from uh, the history of the Third Reich that people who did say no generally didn't get executed. They got transferred to desk jobs. So there wasn't actually that much state often in saying no anyway. So all that is, is really to say Luther and the civil magistrate I think is an interesting area. He's often criticized a little bit like Luther and the Jews. Uh, it's, uh, it's a situation where uh, his thinking is, I think, often misrepresented. Uh, on the Lutheran account, one can indeed resist the civil magistrate in a kind of passive way. Maybe Martin Luther King being named after him is not such a bad thing after all, in that I think some of the things that Dr. King advocated perfectly consistent with a Lutheran kind of ethic. Marriage. Luther was aware that the, the Christian civic life, of course, did not simply consist in his relationship to the civil magistrate or his earthly calling. Marriage is important for Luther as well. He understood marriage as something which uh, predated the fall. Marriage was a good of creation itself. Uh, he understands marriage as something to take away the loneliness of man. Uh, he himself got married. Very controversial move in many ways. By the time Luther gets married in 1525, uh, priests have been marrying for some years in Wittenberg. Luther never had any intention of getting married by 1525. He's well into middle age by 16th century standards. Uh, and as those of you know, uh, I often think as, as when, when, you, when you look out on your church, um, uh, guys who don't get married by the age of 35, they tend to adopt habits that are going to really irritate any women they come across, I think. Uh, I always think there's more hope for, for ladies getting married a bit later on than there is for guys because... Men become grim bachelors pretty quickly. I remember my English teacher at school, uh, was not, who got married when he was older, at some point in class he came in and rather wistfully looked at us and he said, boys, if you're not married by 35, don't get married, it's terrible. And we said, well, why is that, sir? And he said, because your wife will stop you from reading the newspaper at the, at the breakfast table. And we knew there'd been a, a row about breakfast uh, table newspapers. But Luther was definitely a, a, an older an older man when he, he got married. Uh, the story of his marriage is quite a touching one. His wife, what happens in the Reformation is that as, uh, as monasteries get closed down, as the Reformation starts to spread across Germany and monasteries get closed down, uh, you have a lot of single guys and girls thrown out into the marketplace. Uh, and the obvious thing to do with them is to marry them up to each other. Uh, and that's how it worked. I mean, it sounds silly, but that's just how how it operated. And a group of nuns in 1522-1523, a group of nuns escaped from the town of Nimshen. Uh, they've read Martin Luther's stuff. They're converted to the Reformation faith. Uh, they escaped from the town of Nimshen, hidden in fish barrels. Uh, they hide in these barrels that are taken on a, a, on a cart to Wittenberg. The, the 16th century would have been a bad-smelling century anyway. Uh, but, you know, 
girls emerging from fish barrels, that would really have taken it to the next level, uh, I think. And they, they managed to marry off, the, the Wittenberg authorities managed to marry off all, all of the nuns except for one. And they make various efforts to get her married, including trying to marry her off to a particularly miserable skinflint Lutheran pastor just outside Wittenberg, and she refuses. And so it finally comes down to, is it going to be Luther or Nicholas von Amsdorf? And Nicholas von Amsdorf actually was the dire bachelor. He was the man who would sit around drinking beer with Luther while the world, word was out there doing it all. And so Luther and, uh, Luther and Katie, you know, Catherine von Bora, get married in 1525. It's a disaster, a PR disaster, because it occurs at the height of the Peasants' War. Uh, Germany is, is in the throes of a major Peasants' War at this point that culminates in a massacre of the peasants. Uh, and Luther gets married at the height of the fighting, and it seemed to be grossly uh, insensitive. But the marriage itself becomes... It's, it's very important uh, uh, for Luther. She was uh, a pretty sharp lady, he talks about her continually in his table talk. If you've never read Martin Luther, any Luther, get hold of his book of table talks. These were comments that he would throw out uh, over dinner at night. Uh, he and his wife were given the, the uh, Augustinian monastery as a wedding present by the elector. So they lived in the old Augustinian monastery and would take in students as lodgers to supplement their income. They're often poor. Uh, being a reformer did not generate a huge income. Uh, you know, sometimes we need to ask, where did these men get their money from? Calvin was well paid. Luther, not so much. Uh, he spent time as a gardener in Wittenberg while also being a reformer in order to supplement his income. Uh, he tried his hand as a carpenter, but was so bad at it and people complained that he had to, he had to give it up. Uh, but he and his wife would do things to supplement their income, including having students in. And often they would sit around the table at night drinking beer, and Luther would hold court, and, and his followers would write his sayings down. He was always talking about his wife, and he came to appreciate that his wife brought something to his ministry that he needed. Uh, for example, she would stop him swearing. He talks about how when enemies were mentioned, he would swear about them, and his wife would rebuke him in public for using bad language. I'm sure no pastor since has ever been rebuked by his wife for speaking inappropriately about somebody he disagrees with. But Luther's wife would rebuke him for his bad language. Uh, she also, I think, brought out a, a more sensitive and human side of him. If you visit the cloister today, it's a seminary now. There's still students in it. And when you, at the front door, there is a giant door frame, stone door frame, with a seat carved in on either side. And that was a birthday present that Katie bought Luther because she didn't think they were spending enough time talking to each other. And so she bought this door frame so that each night when he came back from uh, the university, they would sit on either side of the door, and he would have to talk to her. And upstairs, if you go into the room upstairs, there's a similar arrangement cut into a, a window frame there, because, you know, hey, this is Northern Europe. I grew up in Northern Europe. It rains all the time. When it was raining, they could go upstairs and have the same uh, arrangement there. Uh, so Luther's marriage uh, was, was very touching. I, just as a, I often wondered why, uh, why do people get divorced after 24, 25 years of marriage? It always puzzled me until my kids went to college. And then I realized it's because that's around the time the kids go to college. And if you haven't talked to your wife or your husband for the last 15, 20 years while you've had kids, 
you'll have nothing in common anymore. And I think Luther's wife was a very astute lady in forcing them. She forced herself and Luther to sit and talk. They had uh, five children, two of whom died very young. Luther, uh, Luther's table talks about the death of his, particularly Magdalena, who died when she was about nine years old, are heartbreaking. And then the, the coffin they make for her is too small to contain her body and it's just a very, very heartbreaking story. But there is, I think, one. There is one area where Luther's marriage was very important that has generally been missed by people. And that is his catechisms. 1527, Luther sends. Uh, uh, well, Luther and Melanchthon, his right-hand man, persuade the elector to do a visitation of the parishes to see how Christian life is progressing in the Reformation at parish level. And the report comes back, and it's terrible. And Luther actually says, you know, when the report comes back, it's clear that the people live like pigs. That's, that's the actual word he used. The people live like pigs. And Luther designs, writes two catechisms, a small catechism and a great catechism. The great catechism is not like a catechism in that it contains very, very, very long answers. It's more like a collection of sermons. And what the great catechism is, is it's designed for ministers who are ignorant to have something useful to say to their people on a Sunday. Think about it. When the Reformation comes to town, it's a little bit like the Iron Curtain uh, coming down in 1989. Yes, Eric Honecker uh, uh, disappears. The Ceausescus disappear. The men at the top vanish. But the party functionaries at local level have to stay in place or it would be total chaos. You need the local magistrates to remain in place. When the Reformation sweeps into town, it does not replace every priest with a Protestant pastor. What happens is the priests become Protestant pastors and they don't know anything about Protestantism. They don't know what they're talking about. You have to provide them with something good to say. So Luther writes out what is essentially a set of sermons framed as a catechism for literate priests to use in their congregations so they won't lead people astray. But he also produces the small catechism. And if you haven't read it, go and look it, go away, look it up online and read it. It's the most beautifully simple straightforward uh, articulation of the Christian faith you'll ever find. And the question is, why is Luther able to write like that? Because he's already a father. Luther is the first man in the history of the Christian church who writes a question and answer catechism after first being a father. And so often when we look at the uh, characters in church history, we tend to think of their thinking as operating, they operate like brains on sticks. Well, no, they don't. They're real human beings worrying about the mortgage, getting ill, getting married, having children. Luther's small catechism is delightfully straightforward and pedagogical. And I'm convinced it's because he's the first man who does this from the perspective of having first been a father. You know, when you're a mum or a dad and you take your, your child out, first of all, you know, take them out for their first walk and they'll point up to the sky and say, you know, what's that? And you'll say, that's a bird. 
And then the next question always is, what's a bird? Or what does a bird do? Or why are birds? And you have to come up with an answer. And you have to answer them in a way that isn't patronizing, but also in a way that they're able to, to grasp what you're saying. That's the quality of Luther's small catechism. So we should not underestimate the theological significance of marriage for Martin Luther. I will give you this uh, one quotation that I like. Uh, when, when Luther talks about what it's like to get, marriage, get married, man has strange thoughts the first year of marriage. When sitting at table, he thinks, before I was alone and now there are two. Or in bed when he wakes up, he sees a pair of pigtails lying beside him, which he hadn't seen there before. On the other hand, wives bring to their husbands, no matter how busy they may be, a multitude of trivial matters. So my cater used to sit next to me at first while I was studying hard and would spit and ask, Doctor, is the Grand Master the Prince's brother? So, but he also in another table talk says, there are times when I come home and I, you know, I have the weight of the world on my shoulders and I'll unburden myself to my wife and she'll say, that's lovely, dear. And do you know that the price of potatoes has gone up? He said, and everything snaps back into perspective and focus. He says this later, I wouldn't give up my Katie for France or for Venice. First, because God gave her to me and gave me to her. Second, because I've often observed that other women have more shortcomings than my Katie. There's a backhanded compliment. Um, I remember once a young lady in my congregation being upset, very upset because... The, the guy she was thinking of romancing said to her, you know, you're not ugly. Thinking, That's not a, you know, you're not ugly. Just, it, that doesn't cut it as a chat-up line, really, does it? Um, he says, I've observed that other women have more shortcomings than my Katie, although, too, she has some shortcomings, but they are outgro- outweighed by her great many virtues. And third, because she keeps faith in marriage, that is, fidelity and respect. So Katie was very, very important to him. Um, and she was quite capable of beating him in, in debate. He loved children. Uh, he thought that uh, he constantly uses children as an example of what Christians should be. He really takes seriously uh, uh, the, the, the verse, unless you become like a little child. To, to Luther, children are the great exemplars of faith because they simply believe. And for him, that was, he would say, I've never mastered the catechism and I need to remain a child when I learn the catechism because that is the way to master the catechism. And he was constantly pointing in his sermons uh, towards uh, children as a great example of how Christians should be. Uh, He also faced, uh, on more than one occasion, I mentioned uh, infant mortality. That's something, of course, that was very, very uh, common in the 16th century. Uh, And Luther's writings on the deaths of his children bring out in a a stark way his his ambiguous approach or his ambivalence towards death. Uh, One point he, he opines that he hopes that his wife and children will die shortly after he does because he thinks the times are becoming very evil. And he cannot bear to think of them living on and suffering in his absence. Uh, On the other hand, he knew that death was uh, itself a a brutally painful experience and should not be. And on the other hand, uh, he knew that death was also a gateway into paradise. 
says this in his table talk in 1528, just after the, the death of his of a child, his child Elizabeth when she was about, well, she was less than a year old. He says, there is no sweeter union than that in a good marriage, nor is there any death more bitter than that which separates a married couple. Only the death of children comes close to this. How much this hurts, I have myself experienced. And then here's how he describes the, the final hours of his daughter Magdalena. When the illness of his daughter became graver, Martin Luther said, I love her very much. But if it is your will to take her, dear God, I shall be glad to know that she is with you. Afterward, he said to his daughter, who was lying in bed, Dear Magdalena, my little daughter, you would be glad to stay here with me, your father. Are you also glad to go to your father in heaven? The sick girl replied, Yes, dear as father, as God wills. The father said, You dear little girl, then turned away from her. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I love her very much. If this flesh is so strong, what must the spirit be? And among other things, he then said, In the last thousand years, God has given to no bishop such great gifts as he has given to me, for one should boast of God's gifts. I'm angry with myself that I'm unable to rejoice from my heart and be thankful to God, but I do at times sing a little song and thank God. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In the genitive singular and not in the nominative plural, he says, giving a nice little Greek twist uh, at the end there. So Luther really understood the the existential agony of, of life here on earth, faced in its most brutal form, as he looked at the death of his beloved child. So that brings me then to, how would, I, how would I conclude this? Why is Luther useful in these areas? I think uh, three things. Three things are very important. One, I think Luther represents an interesting wrestling with the issue of how a Christian should relate to civic society and civil government. And we live at a point in time where that's going to be a very acute question. Uh, there's no doubt that the sort of the broadly Protestant capital uh, that supported uh, the United States way of life, cultural attitude for many years, has now gone. And Roman Catholicism has not filled that gap. So we live, not so much maybe in a secularized world, but we live in a, in a post-Christian world or a world that will rapidly become post-Christian in the United States, albeit the church is healthier here than in many other parts of the world. The church is going to find itself in a new situation in the very near future. And that means that reflection on the relationship of church and state is going to be very important. And it's important to read the great men of the past who wrestled with this, from the Greek apologists right down to the present day. And Luther is one very important voice in that uh, discussion. Secondly, I think the role of earthly callings is of vital pastoral importance. I remember years ago I did a job in a factory for a summer. It was awful. I just spent the day, eight hours a day, five days a week, sellotaping boxes with those metal bits from ring binders in them and pushing them down to the, the end of the factory. It was terribly boring. Uh, but I, I earned money, and I went off and had a nice holiday abroad at the end of it. Two or three years later, I drove past the factory, and I saw the same people going into the factory that I'd worked with on the production line. And it struck me that what had been a boring summer for me that had ended with a great holiday in North Africa was actually a way of life for most people. That was life for them. I'm lucky to have always had a job that... I can't say I enjoy it 100%, but 80, 90% of the time, I really like what I do. And that's an excellent job. 
an excellent job. If you like your job 70, 80% of the time, that's a really good job. How do you speak to people whose jobs don't give them intrinsic satisfaction that way? How do you enable Christians who work in jobs that don't contain an intrinsic dignity as the world understands it? How do you pastor people like that in a way that allows them to glorify God? That's a hard question. I think Luther is one of the people that one would look to uh, for that. And thirdly, I think Luther, I've used his family as an example, but I think Luther is one who lived life to the full and thought theologically about the whole of life. And therefore, whether it's birth, love, marriage, or death, Luther has something to say to it. A few minutes for, for questions, for any questions on anything I've said uh, all day. Or are we out of time? Oh, no, we need the roving mic, don't we? I would like to know what the difference is between like uh, Martin Luther and Philip Langton and how they viewed different doctrines and I've heard that they've kind of had disagreements in some of the doctrines and what yeah. they taught. <clears throat> Good question. The question is what's the, uh, what are the differences between Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther? Philip Melanchthon is uh, his brilliant young lieutenant, very gentle person, brilliant scholar. Uh, the differences, I think, we, we, there, there are two basic differences. One of them is that Melanchthon uh, is with Erasmus on the will and not with Luther. When Erasmus's work, uh, Diatribe on Free Will, arrives in Wittenberg in 15, late 1524, uh, Melanchthon's the first man to read it and runs to Luther and says, this is great, Erasmus the great, is the greatest intellectual of the day. Erasmus is with us, he's declared for us. Luther reads it and says, no, this is terrible. Erasmus doesn't believe in the persecuted of Scripture, and he doesn't believe in the bondage of the will. Uh, Melanchthon goes on to uh, gently articulate the Erasmian position in his later writings. Interesting enough, while Luther repudiates Erasmus and hates him, he never criticizes Melanchthon. I'll come back to that in a minute. Second area of difference is the Augsburg Confession exists in two forms. There's the form of 1530, the original Augsburg Confession, and there's what they call the Augsburg Confession Variata, the varied Augsburg Confession of 1540. The Augsburg Confession of 1540 waters down the teaching on the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. And Melanchthon was much more concessive on the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. The question is, you know, Luther believed that unbelievers actually munched on Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. It was to their condemnation that Christ was objectively present. Melanchthon waters that down somewhat. Uh, so those would be the two areas of difference. Sometimes people try to argue, some people try to argue that Melanchthon develops forensic justification and Luther doesn't use forensic language. When Luther talks about uh, the union of, of the believer and Christ, he uses the marriage metaphor. He says the union of Christ and, and the church is the, like the union of a bride and a, a bridegroom and a groom, and all that belongs to the groom is given to the bride, and all that belongs to the bride is given to the groom. There's the, the joyful exchange of sins and righteousness takes place within the marriage context, the marriage metaphor. Melanchthon uses the law court. It's a, de it's a legal declaration, a legal exchange. Well, 
There's a letter that Melanchthon wrote, I think in about 1539, to a man called Johannes Brentz, where he describes his view of justification. And in a postscript at the bottom, in Luther's hand, Luther says, I agree with Melanchthon, I just describe it a bit differently. That's essentially what he says. So I don't see any difference between Luther and Melanchthon on justification, no deep conceptual difference. Why doesn't Luther repudiate Melanchthon? That's an interesting question, because he repudiates other people who are soft on the sacrament or you know, hold with Erasmus on the, on the bondage of the will. There's a big age gap between them. And I think Luther was intimidated by Melanchthon's brilliance. And I think he was his friend. And I say to students, you know, there are... Friendship is... You know, I'm a historian. I like to be able to explain things. But friendship... Friendship isn't susceptible to explanation sometimes. Who knows? I mean, I've got friends... I won't mention that you probably have heard him. I've got a friend who's a, a, a big, emergent type, new perspective New Testament scholar. And he's a friend of mine. And I'm never going to criticize him in public because he's a friend of mine. I'll criticize the ideas, but I would never go after my friend like that. And I think what we have uh, here with, with Luther is Melanchthon is his friend. And therefore Melanchthon, you know, we forgive our friends a lot of stuff. And I think Luther forgives Melanchthon a lot of stuff. After Luther dies, the battle is the, the battle in Lutheranism is between those who consider themselves the true Lutherans and those who are the followers of Melanchthon, the Philippists. And if you read Luther's table talk, there's a lot in there trashing horoscopes. And you think, well, why does Luther's table talk contain a lot of this stuff? Luther trashing horoscopes. It's because Melanchthon believed in horoscopes. And the table talk's put together by the enemies of Melanchthon. So that after Luther has died, they can say, look, Luther really despised what this man believed about horoscopes. Melanchthon's no, no successor to Luther. Melanchthon never visited England because he had his horoscope cast and he was told, if you cross over water in a boat, the boat will capsize and you will drown. And that's why he never traveled by water. So, Uh, you, you mentioned earlier about uh, Luther being a pastor, theologian, Yeah, uh, which I kind of prefer myself. Um, what is it about a pastor, theologian like Luther that is different from kind of a ivory tower theologian maybe? I think if you're involved in the day-to-day business of a church, uh, it, has, it has a huge impact on a lot of things. First of all, I think it changes the way you talk. Because you have to be able to communicate to ordinary people who don't know the specialized language. Secondly, I think it can make you, it, it, it makes you prioritize things differently. Some battles aren't worth fighting. Uh, thirdly, I think it keeps you humble. Because when you stand in front of a class, by and large, the students adore you. You know, I, I I say they're in all humility. You know, but, but genuinely, you know, when you stand up in front of a class and say something, they write it down. And every year at Westminster, one or two students, I can spot them a mile off and I, and I, I, I distance myself from them straight away. will come to you and the burden of the conversation is, I want to be your disciple. Can I be your disciple? And the temptations, I think, to... Uh, the, the, the temptations are tremendous to really separate yourself off from ordinary people and the ordinary life of the church. So I, when I read Luther, I think this is a man who is deeply rooted among ordinary people. He, commun- he speaks their language. He communicates with them. Uh, he understands that uh, 
that they are to be respected. You know, consider others better than yourself. That's, I think that's something that one should be able to do more easily when you're rubbing up against people who don't necessarily respect you. Uh, so I think it makes a, it makes a big difference. Um, and the students tell me, I, I don't know, that I'm, I think I'm now actually at Westminster at the moment, I'm the only person on faculty who's also an active pastor at the moment. But students have always told me, said, we can always tell in class you guys who are involved in, in the pastorate and the guys who aren't. And I think I can probably tell the difference as well, but it would be unprofessional of me to highlight those differences. But uh, I remember chatting with one colleague who told me that the, you know, that he was, he said, I was asking, uh, he said, I asked this other person what they thought was the major problem facing the church today. And he said to me, do you know what he said to me, Carl? And I said, what? And he said, internet pornography. And burst out laughing. And I said, well, that does strike me as probably the major problem facing the church. He said, Oh, he said, no, no, it's, it's Hegelian views of the Trinity. <laughs> I thought, well, there's a man who, yeah, is about as much use as a chocolate spanner in a church, I would imagine. Uh, my congregation, nobody in my congregation lies awake at night worrying about the intrusion of Hegelian categories into Trinitarian theology, including myself. <laughs> so, uh, Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that the winter following the peasant rebellion, uh, children were freezing and starving uh, of the peasants that had been slaughtered. And Luther's reaction to that was it was a result of their dis civil disobedience. Um, and so he was very discompassionate about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so two questions. Um, what was the thread of logic that led him from his doctrine of civil obedience to that uh, that carried over to the children. Secondly, how did the culture of his day lend itself to that reaction? Um, good questions. Yes, I mean, the, the, the peasants is the, is the other Jewish question in some ways for Luther. The, the two big, big black marks against him are his writings on the Jews and his writings on the peasants. 1525 is the Peasants' Rebellion. Um, I think the, the logic that takes him there, uh, well, I'm not sure that it is logic that takes him there. I think there is a logic that would say the peasants should re shouldn't rebel, the rebellion was wrong, and the civil magistrate was right to put it down. I think what drives Luther, two things that lie in the background that, the, of his extreme statements there. First of all is a general one, and I, I say this, I, I, I'm not trying to excuse Luther at this point, but I do think it is the case that for Luther, as for many of us, his strengths are also his weaknesses. That what the, the very character traits that allow Luther to stand at Worms in 1521, or in Wittenberg in early 1522, to face the world down without flinching. That means he's a stubborn, bull-headed guy. And when all the world is saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, he's prepared to say, no, I'm right, get out of my way. That's a real strength when you're right. It's a disaster when you're wrong. And I think part of what we see with both the Jews and the peasants is, is Luther's personality trait in its catastrophic mode. Uh, that most, you know, we, I know, we know this in our personal experience, quite often the things we appreciate in friends are also the things we can see are most unpleasant about them at, at certain points and contexts. So Luther has a general weakness to, to push to extremes in extreme situations. Sometimes that works well, other times it's a disaster. Uh, the second thing is Luther, initially Luther's sympathetic to the peasants, 
But it becomes patently obvious that if the peasant rebellion is not put down, then there's going to be civil war in the empire and the Reformation will be swept away. So I think Luther makes a... In rugby, we say Luther plays the percentage game to some extent and, 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 and decides he's got to go this way in order to safeguard the greater good of the Reformation. doesn't make his statements excusable or not very obnoxious, but I think that's what's going on in his mind at that particular point in time. Um, you know, and I can think of, of anecdotes with all of the great reformers where their strengths really made them do some disastrous things. And, you know, if I have not been such a disaster myself in my pastoral ministry, I think it's because I'm a more mediocre guy operating in a smaller world where the stakes are lower. Thankfully, I've never been in a situation where lives have depended upon the call I make. Um, so I don't want to excuse Luther at all, but I think what, we, what I say to students is, you know, you can't have worms, diet of worms, without the potential of having 1525. Because it's the same, you know, maybe it would have been good if he died in 1524 and we could have saved ourselves that. But I think his, you know, you think of great men of history, you think of Churchill. Churchill's bloody-mindedness led to the disaster of Gallipoli in the First World War, which was, you know, I had a teacher at school who used to say to us, I think he made it as a compliment, he said, don't worry, boys, Churchill was a total failure until he was retired. And... Uh, you know, Churchill was 65 when he finally became, you know, Churchill got one thing right in his life, and thankfully it was the only thing he actually needed to get right. Uh, but Churchill would be another good example to me of where a man's strengths in the Second World War are precisely what made him such a literally bloody disaster in the First World War. Uh, does, that, does that sort of... Uh, You mentioned earlier, made a reference to the um, two kingdoms theology view of separation between church yeah. and, and culture. Could you um, yeah. expand on that a little bit about what, uh, you, you sort of referenced it, but you didn't really go into what your views yeah, were? Yeah, I think uh, for, for certainly as it's, as it's developed today, the emphasis upon the church as, you know, what is the church here to do? It's to, it's to preach the word, it's to administer the sacraments. It's to look towards a heavenly city. Uh, it's not to engage directly in political agitation. So for me, I would see an application that the two kingdoms would be, I, would, uh, I myself would never picket an abortion clinic as a minister of the gospel. I could see myself doing it as a member of civic society. I have a right to do, I have a right to assemble, I have a right to protest and picket. But I wouldn't do it as a, as a minister. My good friend Pete Lilbach, who is president of the seminary and We've, you know, we worked very closely when I was vice president. Pete would disagree with me. We talked about this, and he said one of the reasons he left the OPC and went to the PCA was in the PCA I have more freedom to operate as a minister politically. So that would be an example for me of where the sort of the two kingdoms stuff that I read from a guy like David Van Drunen is, is, is very helpful to me and most immediately helpful. I would not preach a, political, a directly political sermon. Where I get worried about two kingdoms is that sometimes I, I'm sort of the, I have the English pragmatist deeply ingrained in me, and I, I worry about ideology and I worry about being partisan to the point where it makes you stop doing things that really you should do. I was on a panel a few years ago. I, I mentioned this last night uh, 
Some people I was with, I was on a panel with Daryl Hart, and somebody in the audience asked the question, would Jay Gresson Machen have preached a pro-life sermon? And Daryl said no. And I understand that Daryl's fear of allowing politics to overwhelm the gospel. But it seems to me there are texts in the Bible where the obvious application is you shouldn't kill babies and you shouldn't kill babies in the womb. Now that society's made that a political issue. But it was in the Bible first. If society chooses to make that a political issue, that's society's choice. I'm still going to preach the text. So my fear about two kingdoms as it's working out at the moment is I'd hate it to become so ideological that it becomes a kind of Procustian bed where every biblical text has to fit our preconceived idea of of what it is. Um, But I do think it's a healthy corrective to... It strikes me as significant that Paul doesn't campaign for the transformation of the Roman Empire, for example. Uh, Paul focuses very much on problems in the church and on the preaching of the gospel. And when he says, obey the civil magistrate, whatever you think of of the last 20, 30, 40 years of presidents in the United States, none of them were Nero. You know, they're all pretty good bunch compared to what Paul was facing, by and large, in, in Rome. So uh, that, that's how I would see uh, two kingdoms. I also see two kingdoms as making us more charitable towards our politicians quite often. David Van Drun has a great section at the end of his book where he's talking about it's possible that, you know, we just get very unnuanced stuff on the news, person X didn't vote for the pro-life bill that was going through. When you dig below the surface, maybe there are all kinds of egregious things attached to that bill that meant that person as a Christian ultimately couldn't in good conscience vote for it. So uh, I think that the way David Van Drunen works and stuff also brings out a nice healthy complexity of thinking politically. Uh, So one more, yeah. Are there significant differences between the doctrine of the Lutheran church today compared to what Luther himself actually taught? Well, if, you, if you're talking in the broadest terms, then, then, then the Lutheran churches today are just as broadly spread as the Presbyterian or the Baptist churches. Uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America is really like the PCUSA. So you, it would be very li- there would be some conservative people in it, but there would also be a, a lot of liberals uh, if you went to the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, or, or even more so the Wisconsin Synod, then you're moving in into areas that would be more akin to the Conservatives and the Southern Baptist Convention, or the PCA, or the, or the OPC. So there's a real spread. If you're dealing with the confessional, you know, let, let, we narrowed it down and say, what about conservative Lutherans? Do they sort of connect with what Luther said? My impression is that by and large, yes, their, their confessional standards include the catechisms that Luther wrote, the Augsburg Confession, um, they would still have a very high view of the Lord's Supper and the objective presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Uh, they would probably be less enamored of Luther on the bondage of the will than, than Luther himself was. That would be downplayed, I think. But even the later Luther doesn't talk much about that. So I think if you're dealing with confessional Lutherans, it's a little bit like saying to Presbyterians today, how do they connect to Calvin? I think one would say that conservative Presbyterians, we can certainly trace much of what they think today back to Calvin and his contemporaries. There would be some differences, but by and large, there would be substantial identity.